Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Israel's banned 20 organizations that support the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. I'll talk with one of them, the American Friends Service Committee. New York is suing big oil for damages related to climate change. We'll consider the impact. And in our global activism segment, we'll hear from Cause Gear. It's a fashion and accessories business that pays its workers five times the norm. Don't forget you can follow the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. The American Friends Service Committee marked 100 years of service last year. The organization was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1947 for assisting and rescuing victims of the Nazis in World War II, including thousands of Jewish victims. So there was a sad irony that they were among the 20 organizations that Israel banned from the country for supporting the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. Last year, Israel amended a law to allow banning activists who promote the boycott of Israel and or its settlement. Brant Rosen and Jennifer Bing made what could be their last trip to Israel-Palestine for some time last fall. They are here with me in the studio. Brant Rosen is the Midwest Regional Director of AFSC and a rabbi at Zedek Chicago. And Jennifer Bing directs the Chicago AFSC Middle East program. Good to see you. Good to see you. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Um, Brant, I wonder if you could reflect a little more on... Um, this sad irony that the American Friends Service Committee is among the banned organizations. It has a deep and long history that predates the state of Israel. Sure. Uh, yes, I think irony is, is a good word for it. Um, you know, the AFSC, as you mentioned, uh, well, it, it, it celebrated its centennial year last year. Uh, it was founded in the wake of World War I uh, to do work with uh, veterans from that war from all over the world in the wake of that, that horrible war in doing relief, but also reconciliation work and repatriation. And it did this work during World War II, uh, rescuing uh, Jewish refugees, uh, aiding Jewish and advocating for them. And in the wake of, of the war, uh, doing reconciliation work within Germany that I think had a huge impact on, on the reconciliation movement in Germany that continues even today. And as a Quaker organization, AFSC is committed to nonviolence, to pacifism, to nonviolent means for uh, solving conflicts around the world. And boycott is, has, is a time-honored nonviolent tactic that has been used. It was used in Montgomery, in the Montgomery bus boycott. It was used in California with United Farm Workers. Uh, during the anti-apartheid movement, it was used in South Africa. So it is, it's, it's a bit of a cruel irony that by supporting uh, a civil society call from Palestinians for nonviolent resistance to uh, this oppressive occupation that suddenly in the eyes of some Jews, uh, not all certainly, but there are some in the Jewish community that 
have been uh, very complimentary about their uh, their work with Jewish refugees, but when it comes to Palestinian refugees, that's where alliance seems to be drawn. What are people saying inside of Israel about this? Because um, AFSC has uh, has been honored at Yad Vashem, and that there's a, there's a lot of uh, history there. Yeah, it's interesting. There was just an article in Haaretz yesterday by Chem Shalev, uh, who is, a, I'd say, a pretty mainstream uh, columnist who uh, wrote an article, a blistering article, uh, that AFSE was included on this list. I think, I think the headline for the article was that uh, banning AFSE from Israel is a crime against humanity. Uh, I don't know how... Uh, how indicative his view is of average Israelis. I don't know that the average Israeli knows about AFSC, certainly. Uh, but it, it's a venerable organization, and it certainly has an international reputation, uh, richly deserved for uh, doing very, very important work around the world. Jennifer, you uh, direct the Chicago AFSC Middle East program and have for a long time. Uh, can you detail how um, the American Friends Service Committee got involved in the BDS movement? So the um, Palestinian Civil Society organizations in 2005 issued a call to for international support for their efforts to end the occu- occupation and to support equality within sides of Israel and to ask for the return of Palestinian refugees. And that call was put out to um, organizations, to faith communities, um, asking for that support. And uh, the, the so the American Friends Service Committee, in um, especially because we've had a presence there since 1948, working both in, in Gaza and the West Bank and inside of Israel, Obviously, this is something that that we needed to consider and and to figure out our response. Um, Quakers um, take time <laughs> to uh, reach decisions, um, and um, partially because we can, we make decisions by consensus. Uh, so our national board um, took actually two years to um, uh, think about the call, to think of, to listen to all perspectives on the issue, um, to talk to our partners, excuse me, <clears throat> and and then decided to support it um, and to look pr- predominantly at our own investments and to look and see um, what we, um, how we are complicit in continuing the occupation. So um, it, now, <clears throat> as things have um, moved along here, you've uh, obviously had a presence there since 1948. How does this affect your work? You were just there in the fall working with colleagues. Um, I imagine uh, this kind of tosses things up in the air in a way. Well, let's keep in mind that, you know, Palestinians and Palestinian-Americans, many of them also can't go to the to, to visit, even though it's the their family's homeland. Um, so a ban against the uh, uh, people that work for AFSC, <laughs> we kind of join many others. Um, well, explain that a little more, because how, how easy is it for you to go to Gaza? You guys were, were in Gaza last fall. Right. So it's not easy. Um, and Gaza is a specific case um, because of the due to the 10 year old blockade uh, on Gaza. So it's you have to apply for um, to the Israeli military for permission um, to enter Gaza. And um, we were able to do that because we're part of an NGO that has been there for so long, a non-governmental organization doing 
um, work, both uh, humanitarian and supporting um, youth in Gaza. So that we were able to get um, permission to, to enter, but it was a long process and it, you know, went through the Israeli military would vet each of our um, applications. So you don't see tourists going to Gaza. Um, but that's also um, Gaza is different than the West Bank, different than um, Jerusalem. And there have been, um, you know, hundreds of cases of Palestinian Americans and others who've who've been denied access even at the at the airport getting into to um, to visit. So the the work that you do it will be affected, or uh, you've got people who are Palestinians working with right. you in Gaza. So it, right. I mean, I imagine you can still do work. Right. Right. Yeah. All of our staff are. Um, in Gaza, our local Palestinians, also our staff in Jerusalem, um, are Israeli and Palestinians. So um, our work will continue, and and we don't know what what the impact will be at the border um, entering. But um, what what this ban has done is uh, given us an opportunity to talk about um, the conditions there, um, the the kind of absurdity of um, banning. People, you know, banning people from from traveling there and and doing our work um, to lift up the voices for human rights. I'm talking with Jennifer Bing. She directs the Chicago AFSC uh, Middle East program, and Brant Rosen. He is the regional director at the American Friends Service Committee here. Um, Brant, you wanted to chip in there? Yeah, I think it's important to. Uh, give a little bit of history about AFSC's work in Israel-Palestine. So uh, at the end of 1948, the UN actually asked the AFSC to go in to be involved with uh, refugee relief. So this is while the, the war was still going on. So the AFSC was actually in Gaza before the UN, before UNRWA, the, the official UN organization, took over. And uh, it was involved with relief work almost from the beginning. and But also from the beginning, AFSC made it clear that they didn't want to just go in and do relief. They uh, were going in with the expectation that there would be a political settlement to this conflict. And as time went on, it became clear that uh, within the new government of Israel and the international community, there was not political will to uh, repatriate or return the refugees. AFSC said, we're not going to just stay here and, and keep them here indefinitely. Uh, and so that's when the UN took over in, in 1950. And I think it's important to underline that AFSC's work even today is not strictly humanitarian. Uh, the situation in Gaza is not a humanitarian situation. It is a politically caused situation that will only be solved through a political solution. Uh, so we see our work as uh, certainly aiding where aid is needed, but also uh, giving strength to the people who are there to uh, – to advocate for their their position and connect with one another because fragmentation in the Palestinian uh, community in Israel, the West Bank, and Gaza is is a serious problem. You've got a, a website that you've created, GazaUnlocked.org, and you have people telling stories about what it's like to live in Gaza, about how the boycott uh, affects them, about ways that people can help help the situation in Gaza. What do, what do you think? Uh, you had never been to Gaza, I know, before you made this trip, Brant. Uh, what, 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 how do you see it when you see it in fresh eyes? You know, I think Gaza for many people is is 
sort of mystified. You know, it's it's uh, it's been painted for so long as this den of terrorism. And I think the other way people view Gaza is just as victims, as people who are, you know, bombed periodically. And uh, and then I guess there are those who also think it's just they're all just terrorists. You know, it's uh, it's run by a terrorist regime, quote unquote. And so there's lots of mythology around Gaza. And I think for me going in, uh, Jennifer mentioned how difficult it was to get in. Uh, I've never I've been in and out of Israel many, many times in my life and I'm used to security. I've never seen security like this. Uh, it is. Uh, it was almost like something out of a dystopian science fiction movie, uh, what you had to go through to uh, actually enter Gaza. Uh, and there was two uh, sets of passport control because Israel and Hamas don't have relations. So that you have to go through uh, first Israeli uh, passport control and then Palestinian Authority passport control. And then you walk about a kilometer down a long uh, caged gateway through a sort of a no man's land. And then finally you go through Hamas uh, passport control. And then you take, you uh, finally emerge into the North end of Gaza where, you know, it's welcome to Gaza. But once we were in um, and I don't want to sound, um, patronizing or, or trite, but we met remarkable people, you know, like you and me, uh, doing their best to live a dignified life under extraordinarily oppressive circumstances. There's electricity shortages, there's uh, power, sorry, these water problems, mm-hmm. um, all these things happen. And that was all there. I mean, we, we you know, it's, it's impossible to get away from. There are drones overhead. Uh, you could smell the sewage. You could smell the, the sewage when you were near the coast. It, it's uh, it was sort of a dual reality. You had a blog post about um, some of the park benches and the benches around Gaza that were had a, had a message on them that they were, I think people would find surprising here. Yeah. So the population of of Gaza is the majority of them about seventy percent are refugees, <clears throat> and most of them came from. Uh, historic Palestine, uh, what's considered today the the center and and northern section of the state of Israel. And so um, that's a bit of the background. So we were driving down the coast and our colleague in Gaza uh, mentioned to us that he pointed out just almost offhand, he said, look at those benches. There are these beautifully painted benches on the seashore uh, with Arabic on the back of them. And he said, every one of those has the name of a city or a town or a village that was depopulated by its population and whose refugee refugees are now living in Gaza. So that every day there's this remembrance of what is actually their home. And I think so many people don't stop to realize that that the yearning for home is still very real and very palpable for Palestinians. And um, they haven't forgotten. Uh, and it's that memory is being passed down through the generations. And just seeing it as something as simple as uh, words on a, on a bus bench, I think, uh, was a very, very powerful image for me. So that's why I decided to take pictures of as many as I could see and put them on my blog. Um, Jennifer, I know you're doing a program uh, next Tuesday uh, about Gaza at the AFSC offices. Yes, at Grace Place, um, 637 South Dearborn, um, we're going to be um, having a presentation and slides from our visit in October. And we're also going to be uh, joined by a Palestinian from Gaza who's going to give some history and context uh, to our um, 
to our visit. So we, we would love for people to come and hear more about Gaza. We realize we're, we're very lucky to have um, visited and to share the stories of people that we we met there who uh, were so excited to see people um, visiting from the United States. You know, we also think of um, of, of that place being so sealed off and so difficult to um, to reach, and that's why we call our website Gaza Unlocked because we really want to unlock both um, the stories from from people there and also our relationship as Americans to Palestinians in Gaza. So you can get more information uh, about uh, your event on Tuesday at your website at the American Friends Service Committee Chicago uh, website. And then there's GazaUnlocked.org for stories about people living in Gaza. Thanks a lot for joining us. Uh, Jennifer Bing uh, directs the Chicago uh, Middle East program for the uh, AFSC. And uh, the Midwest Regional Director is Brant Rosen for the American Friends Service Committee. Thanks for talking with us. And we'll chat with you again soon. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Coming up after the break, we're going to chat about uh, climate change and New York's lawsuit against the big oil companies. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. There was a lot of climate change news yesterday. While seated next to the city comptroller and activist Bill McKibben and Naomi Klein, New York Mayor Bill de Blasio announced that New York City is suing five oil companies over the billions of dollars New York has to spend protecting the city from the effects of climate change. It also plans to divest its pension fund's $5 billion worth of assets involving fossil fuel producers. And uh, we're going to chat about this situation with Howard Lerner, Executive Director of the Environmental Law Policy Center here. Thanks for joining me, Howard. Um, Howard Lerner, uh, could you tell me, there's a similar lawsuit in California that um, is being led by San Francisco and Oakland and some other cities that is doing something similar to what is going on in uh, New York City, suing these five oil companies over the billions of dollars of damages. Um, what kind of uh, what kind of impact do these kind of lawsuits have? Are they important? Well, this has a big impact, both in the short term and the long term. What we're seeing is cities like New York, San Francisco, Chicago, Los Angeles stepping up with climate change actions and solutions when the federal government under President Trump is stepping back. These are tort actions being brought yesterday by New York City under both state statutory law and state common law. And the goal is for the large oil companies, which knew the risks from their carbon pollution for many years, to pay for the costs of rebuilding cities to make them more resilient to protect public health in the wake of more intense storms, higher water levels, and extreme impacts. What's going on is, for the long run, this is going to be in the courts for a while. In the short run, this means that the oil companies are going to have to tell financial analysts and others there is a significant, meaningful risk 
just as there was in the tobacco litigation, financial judgments against these companies. Now, is this a volume thing? Because if there's more lawsuits against the oil companies, is that good? Uh, if Chicago were to sue the oil companies uh, for damages and all sorts of other cities, is Miami, I imagine, is facing damages, uh, would that be good? This isn't more as good just for the purpose of filing lawsuits. But if you look at what the New York City lawsuit's about and the San Francisco lawsuit's about, these are about damages and harms to, to specific places. So the New York City lawsuit is not seeking to redress problems to public health or the infrastructure in Chicago. It's about New York City, and the same in California. So just as the tobacco litigation looked at damages and harms to people in Illinois or people in Alabama or people in California, I think we're going to see some other cities stepping up here and saying, if the oil companies are responsible for these huge costs we're going to have to deal with more extreme weather events, <clears throat> the need to rebuild our city infrastructure, <clears throat> more intense storms, higher water levels, Chicago may well be seeking a remedy in the same way that New York is. And ultimately, New York can't be doing it for the damages in Chicago and Chicago not for the damages in San Francisco. So there will be more lawsuits because while the facts are somewhat similar in terms of what the oil companies knew and what they did, the impacts are different in different cities. Howard, uh, what about the divestment of the pension funds that took place uh, yesterday? They announced that they were going to get rid of $5 billion in assets in, uh, in a bunch of different pension funds that New York City uh, controls. Uh, is How big a number is that, and uh, how big is the... Um, the, the divestment movement? Well, the divestment movement is growing. There are universities, there are foundations that have begun to divest. And now what we're beginning to see is Mayor de Blasio vowing that the New York City pension funds, and apparently, you know, there's some steps that need to be taken, and you know, the pension boards themselves need to actually decide to do this. But that's divesting about $5 billion from businesses in fossil fuel. The lawsuits have an immediate impact in terms of presenting financial risks to the oil companies of large damage awards. But we all know the wheels of justice likely grind slowly. The divestiture really hits the oil companies where it hurts in their stock prices and their balance sheets. So look to see whether other municipalities and other state pension funds join in with what New York is doing. If we see a wave among the cities and states stepping up to divest uh, the way that's beginning to happen with foundations and universities, that has a much shorter term, more immediate impact on stock prices and balance sheets. Of course, the stock, I qualify as a legal expert, I'm not a financial analyst, but common sense suggests that when large municipalities, states, universities, foundations, union pension funds divest from oil company stocks, there will be a downward impact on the stock prices, although that's not the only effector. It's not the only factor affecting oil companies' profitability, but large-scale divestiture has got to have a fundamental impact on stock prices and balance sheets. That's hitting them in the wallet where it hurts. 
I'm talking with Howard Lerner, Executive Director of the Environmental Law Policy Center, and we're chatting a bit about some of the climate news that's out there. Um, Also this week, Howard, the Federal Regulatory Commission uh, unanimously rejected the Trump administration's proposal that would have uh, favored the coal industry by rewarding electric companies for keeping big stockpiles of fuel on hand, uh, supposedly to improve the reliability of power supplies. And they did this uh, unanimously. Um, The Trump administration seems to really have uh, taken a lot of the coal companies' proposals and and tried to run with them here, and uh, the the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission rejected it. You know, this was a real big... This was a big brushback to the Trump administration's Department of Energy, which was looking to create enormous out-of-market subsidies for coal plants and nuclear plants. You know, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission returned to common sense. For 50 years, its job has been to support competitive energy markets, and this proposal would have distorted that. Um, What was being proposed by the Department of Energy here was that for those power-generating sources that can stockpile fuel for 90 days, and that's only coal plants and nuclear plants, uh, they would get a big bump in terms of, you know, in effect, favorable rate treatment. Uh, It's a little bit more complicated how this would play out, but they would get significant out-of-market subsidies that would make them much more competitive uh, versus wind and solar and natural gas and also, to some extent, oil. So what happened was the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, a lot of people were afraid, was going to sort of roll over. There are three Republican appointees, two Democrats. FERC, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, has a long history of working and issuing unanimous decisions. They don't tend to have a lot of dissents. And clearly here, there were at least three and maybe four of the commissioners who said, no, this is not what we do at FERC. We support competitive markets. We don't distort competitive markets here for the coal and nuclear industry. I think they surprised a lot of people that they stepped up and played it straight. There were some concurring opinions that indicated that at least one of the commissioners, Commissioner Chatterley, wasn't quite on the same page. But FERC did its job. They did it well. They showed some independence. They affirmed competitive energy markets, and they rejected what would have been a huge subsidy from the public, which people don't support, uh, for coal plants and nuclear plants. So that's good news this week. Now, uh, President Trump had some thoughts about climate yesterday in a press conference he had with uh, Norway's prime minister. And I thought I'd play a a section here where he got um, talking about uh, the International Climate Agreement and 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 coal and, and what it means to the United States. Um, here's President Trump from yesterday. I will say that the Paris Agreement as drawn and as we signed was very unfair to the United States. It put great penalties on us. It made it very difficult for us to deal in terms of business. It took away a lot of our asset values. We are a country rich in gas and coal and oil and lots of other things, and there was a tremendous penalty for using it. How does that sound uh, to your ears? (laughs) We're rich in gas and coal and oil, and there's a tremendous penalty uh, in the Paris Agreement on that. Oh, come on. (laughs) Look. There's, there's no question that in order to reduce 
carbon pollution. You have to go to what's emitting carbon, and that's what causes climate change. Coal plants emit carbon. Oil refineries emit carbon. So the whole purpose of the Paris Climate Accord is to really do two things. Reduce carbon pollution from the sources that are emitting it, coal, oil, and other fossil fuels, and at the same time, accelerate investment and development of clean renewable energy like solar energy, wind power, and energy efficiency, which is the best and fastest and cheapest way of helping to solve our climate change problems. Um, President Trump's views are out of touch with science, sound science, and they're out of touch where most of the world is going. The United States right now is the only country that is staying outside of the Paris Climate Accord if the president indeed pulls us out, which he's been threatening to do. And hopefully, like the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission decision this week, where that agency came back to its senses, our American government will come back to its senses and stay a part of the Paris Climate Accord and move it forward. President Trump's statements yesterday were not constructive toward that end, but you know, hopefully uh, some common sense here will prevail going forward. Let, let's face it, um, Mother Nature is not going to pause for the next three years when it comes to the impacts of climate change. We need to find ways of achieving progress here in the United States, here in Illinois, here in Chicago, um, and with the rest of the world moving forward. Yeah, you know, Howard, I don't know if you've been able to look at some of the pictures of the mudslide in California that is killing people right now after the wildfires uh, created a mudslide. Uh, people who were just evacuated from their homes for wildfires got evacuated and seen their homes destroyed by mudslides and people killed. I mean, dozens of people who are dead. Uh, this is this is real stuff. Jerome, it's it's terrifying. And at the Environmental Law and Policy Center, we have a science advisory council of some of the very best scientists at the University of Michigan, University of Illinois, University of Wisconsin, from around our region. I mean, these folks are great. And what they are saying to us on a regular basis is these are the predictable, anticipable impacts uh, of changes in weather and changes in climate, uh, changes in the intensity of storms, uh, due to temperatures rising. And not all of this is stuff that we can adapt to. Uh, we need to find ways to mitigate, to reduce the amount of carbon pollution so we head off some of the worst impacts. And as people and policymakers uh, in the United States and throughout the world see more and more of the impacts of hurricanes and storms and you know, wildfires and mudslides, the scientific evidence is increasingly connecting these events directly to climate change. We need to do something about it. Howard Lerner is Executive Director of the Environmental Law and Policy Center. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about some of the climate change out there yesterday. You're welcome. Always good to join you, Jerome.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for our World History Minute with historian John Schmidt. John is the author of On This Day in Chicago History, but he works the world for us. And there's nothing more important to the world than public transportation. We all need it. We all want it. We have no idea where it came from, John. Uh, Here in Chicago, our first subway opened in 1943, but our World History Moment goes back uh, 80 years before that. January 10th, 1863, and that was the opening of the world's first subway. Well, the place is London, and during the first half of the 19th century, the population of London was exploding. It was growing. The streets were jammed with pedestrians and horse-drawn vehicles, and the crush was worse in the district uh, known as the city, uh, London's commercial heart. And each workday, about a quarter of a million people crowded in this tiny little area. Then in 1843, a pedestrian tunnel was completed under the Thames River, and this gave a politician named Charles Pearson an idea. Why not tunnel a railroad line under the congested city streets? Well, first, Pearson's idea uh, was to have the mainline railroads use this new tunnel for access to the central region known as the city, but the railroad companies weren't interested in this. Well, what finally emerged was a plan for a tunnel of just under four miles, and with Stations in this tunnel would be near the existing railroad terminals, and then shuttle trains in this tunnel would carry passengers and freight back and forth into the city. The subway company called the Metropolitan Railway, and it was uh, chartered in 1854. Then it took another six years to raise funds. Work finally began in 1860, and construction was carried on using shovels. Very basic. A method was used called cut and cover. The workers basically dug a trench in the street, and then they shored up each of the sides with brick. And after that, uh, the top of the trench was covered over with brick arch or, or iron girders. And finally, the street at the top was repaved, and then traffic resumed. By 1862, by the end of the year, by December, track had been laid, and the subway was ready. Company officials and members of parliament made that first inspection trip, but unfortunately, Charles Pearson never saw his dream become a reality. He just died. Well, the world's first subway was open to the public January 10th, 1863. It was a Saturday, and nearly 40,000 people bought tickets. The trains operated on a 15-minute headway, and a trip over the entire 3.75-mile route took about 18 minutes. That first year, nine and a half million passengers rode. But there was still a problem. The underground trains were powered by steam locomotives. And it got pretty smoky in the tunnel. So the company tried using fans. They later opened up vents to the surface. And that caused trouble, too, because when the train went through, the smoke would shoot up to the street and it scared the horses. Well, finally, the Met was electrified in the 1890s and uh, London subways system still brings millions of people around London each year. Well, this is very interesting. Uh, you know, it's uh, so many people bought tickets even on that first day uh, and, and accepted the idea of, I'm going to go into a tunnel and, and avoid the traffic. This will be great. I keep telling you, it, it's nothing to worry about, Jerome. Subway, <laughs> subway travel is, is wonderful. I know you're a bike rider. You prefer to ride on the surface. I'm a but, yeah, I guess so. But it gets us around the city very fast, and it's a great form of public transportation. You should try it more often. Well, our hat's off to Charles Pearson and his idea of the first subway, January 10th, 
1863 in London. Coming up after the break, we'll have our global activism series where we feature people who make the better place, make the world a better place. And today we'll find out about Cause Gear. It's an organization that is helping alleviate poverty and providing work for former slaves. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for our global activism segment where we feature people who make the world a better place. Just recently, I picked up a new backpack. It's made by Cause Gear, and it's a really smart-looking canvas backpack, and I was happy to have it because I know it was made by people who are being paid a not just a living wage, but a really good living wage. And we thought we'd talk about this uh, fair trade company with the founder, Brad Jeffrey, and Catherine Jeffrey, uh, his wife, and the chief marketing officer. Thanks a lot for joining us. So great to be here. Great to be here. Um, can you explain a little bit about Cause Gear and where it came from? The, 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 the idea that you, you, you weren't someone who wanted to run a clothing and accessories business for, for a living. That was not your goal in life, but um, you've come to do that. Exactly, yeah. No, this, this caught me by surprise. I spent 26 years in uh, the manufacturing world, um, and at one point I got to a place in my life where I began to question um, – What's my purpose on this planet? Someone someone asked me, um, so if you died today, what would people say about you? I didn't like the answer to that question. And I, so I began a quest to to really find more significance in, in what I did. And I started to research poverty and slavery, which was already on my radar. And the more I got into the topic, the more I was deeply touched by it. And through some travel and research that landed me in 2010, roughly, um, in Kenya, I met with some women, really girls, 15 to 16-year-olds, who were HIV positive in a slum in Kenya, in Nairobi. And they told me that if they could have a job that paid them $8 a day, it would forever change them. And that just that hit me so hard. And I, I thought, wow, that is something that we should be able to do, is create jobs like that to help people like this. Um, and do you just go right out and then make a company yet? You <laughs> say, well, I can do this manufacturing-wise. How do you get to the point where you uh, start making – you've got bags and accessories uh, and clothes now. There's right. a lot of stuff. Yeah. So we, we – it's an adventure, that's for sure, for both of us. We, it's really um, a lot of trial and error like a lot of startups. Uh, I, I really believe in the term fail fast. Uh, when you develop something new and different, and that's what it's been. And through a lot of trial and error, I, I've been an entrepreneur most of my life, and so I'm used to that. And it's uh, just through this process of six years now, uh, we've really got to a sweet spot of developing a product line that meets needs of consumers. But it's it hasn't been without a lot of uh, – a lot of experimenting and trying things. You know, I don't. Uh, sometimes it, it is kind of jaw dropping. We all know that a lot of the things are being manufactured in bad conditions. Um, but I, you sent me this article about some of these Hugo Boss uh, bags that were were associated with forced labor in India. Um, Prada has uh, been accused of a lack of transparency about how their workers are, are work is sourced. I mean, some of the biggest name accessories out there, Catherine, seem to be having huge problems. 
Yeah, um, they are. It's it's really understanding the supply chain and and what's on the other end, and so we're trying to work directly with our crafters so that they're not lost at the bottom of this long chain of people and and intermediaries. Yeah, and it, that's right. And to add to that. What's really happening in the fashion world is big companies like, like Hugo, and in this in this um, in this article, they they claim to not really have any uh, direct examples of anything happening. And this is this is true. They they typically do not know. Um, I don't know if you remember a few years back, Rana Plaza in Bangladesh collapsed, sure. and th- over a thousand people perished, and major brands were involved in that. And what they found is the major brand said, we had no idea our products were being made in these factories. And that's, I believe that's true. The problem is these, main, these mainline big companies go to brokers may, that actually outsource the manufacturing for them. So they're removed from the actual factory that makes the product, and they have no connection to that. How did you find people to work with? And you're working primarily with people in India. Yeah, so we uh, we search for like-minded organizations. Uh, some are profit, some are some are nonprofit that shared our vision that that had a mission to transform the lives of people that were victims of poverty and slavery. And what we found is there's quite a few organizations out there that are sewing things. Uh, the challenge is the product line wasn't really developed well enough to be marketable. But they had the skills and they had the system in place and they had the wages and they had the benefits and all that. They just needed product and a market. So we have now four partners throughout India and we're eventually going to be moving into, into uh, Kenya that um, have the infrastructure, have the capacity that, um, that can make these products. It's really about bringing design and market opportunity to them. Now, one of the interesting things about Cosgear is you talk about the people who make the products right on the products. If, if you get a bag, you get a description of a human being who has made the product. Um, that's pretty wild. Yeah. Well, what, what we realize is, is personal story is, is key to this. The, these are humans on the other end of everything that we buy. And Catherine can go into more detail some of the, the things she's learned through some of the stories. But we, want, we wanted our consumers, our, our partners and, and the people that support us to really understand the, the deeper side to this. So some of our products actually have the name and the face of the actual crafter who made it. And others are protected through a silhouette face with our Made by Free Women project. Um, Catherine, what, uh, what are some of the stories about these people? Yeah, I mean, I think about when, you know, we walk into Target and we look at everything in front of us, like everything on the racks is made by a person, right? But we have no connection. And so we're able to sit with our crafters and hear their stories. And one in particular, we have a choker online that we just added to our collection. And this is made by a girl who comes from a family of five daughters and women over there aren't always seen to have a lot of value to the family. Um, one day their dad was, I guess, overwhelmed or, you know, we're not really sure, but one day he just left and moved to be with his other family. And so the five daughters and the mom were left with nothing. And this job allowed her making jewelry has allowed this girl to finish college. Now she wants to get her MBA. And she also, they kind of launched her out from the crafting team. So she, she actually has her own business now. Um, and, and then feeds the jewelry back into our, our larger crafting team. And so it's just this amazing story of how 
the the choker that you buy is literally offering this family hope and dignity. Um, you have a line called "Made by Free Women." And how do you end up working with people who were formerly slaves? How do you how do you know that's going yeah, on? Yeah, yeah. Well, first thing it's important to note that slavery is at an all time high of forty five plus million, um, according to the Global Slavery Index, and seventy percent of that number, over seventy percent, are women, and forty percent of slavery is in India alone. So the number's huge, the, and the situation is dire. What we have found is that these organizations I talked about earlier have a direct link uh, to the slums and the impoverished areas of India to the point where every day we we heard that an average 10 women come to them and say, do you have work for us? Because they heard about this opportunity. And these are women um, that the organization we work with, by the way, they do some um, deep intelligent work to intelligence work to know the communities, what's going on in the community. They're very involved in the schooling system and different things at churches. And they, so they know these people personally. They know the communities very well. And they're from that area. These are locals that have started these teams. Um, and um, you end up paying people uh, according to a five times job model, five times what it would normally be. I imagine that's why people are coming. Exactly. Yeah, it's part of it. Yeah, it's 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 a it's good livable wages, but it's also a holistic, dignified environment that they get to work in. It's clean, it's safe, it's fun. There's there's health care, there's child care, there's medical services, all kinds of things. That's so it's more than the wage, but that definitely is a huge part of it. And um, yeah, so they um, th- we came up with that number because when the women told me in Kenya that. $8 a day was the magic number. That basically equates to a wage that needed to be five times. Um, and do you end up quantifying on your garments and products um, how much support you um, people get, how many days they can live off, off that product's um, uh, the more what you pay for. Right, right. So what we measure is the days of essentials impact. And on average, a purchase provides one day of essentials being food, water, clothing, education, housing, et cetera. And then we actually put that number of essentials next to each product um, on the web store so people know how many days they're providing. We calculate that. And we also do that with corporations that we partner with. We measure the days of essentials our partnership with them is providing, which has been a real powerful um, corporate social responsibility um, relationship. I'm talking with Brad Jeffrey and Catherine Jeffrey about Cause Gear. Their uh, organization is out there providing uh, clothes and accessories that are made by people in great situations with paying, being paid real living wages. Um, now, you've got um, – explain your business model a little more about um, what kind of a – you're a fair trade organization – you're um, a low-profit uh, organization, so you are a for-profit, but you have signed up for something uh, that is a low-profit. Right, right. So Illinois was one of the first states to adopt what's called an L3C status, and that stands for Low-Profit Limited Liability Company. And what that means is that we're a for-profit, but profit is secondary to purpose and mission of the business. It's it's quite the contrary to most for-profit companies in the fashion industry where they're, they're profit-driven. We're purpose-driven. So it's kind of an upside-down, inverted motivation. Um, now, that sounds terrific. And, um, and you're designing all the stuff here in Chicago. That's right. 
And uh, people can check it out. You've got an Instagram account where there's lots of pictures. Exactly. So at Cause Gear is our Instagram, and our website is causegear.com. And some of the corporate sponsor people that you're working with, you work with uh, Ravinia Festival, lots of organizations. Yeah, Ravinia is a really big supporter of, supporter of ours. They've provided over 6,000 days of essentials. For oh, there crafters. you go. <laughs> There's yeah, the number. So we're really excited to work with Ravinia and other major corporations like Duracell, Takeda Pharmaceuticals, Loyola University right here, and many others. Uh, that's terrific. And um, you've got ways that people can get involved uh, in to, to, and work with Cause Gear uh, and associate themselves with the. With yeah, this. we've had a lot of people reach out to us and say, I want to be a part of this. I just don't want to support it through a purchase, which is really awesome when people do that. So we have volunteer opportunities and intern opportunities. We have advocacy, um, an advocacy program that college students and, and alike will sign up for. Uh, there's many ways. And if you, our website has a whole, whole, whole bit of um, There's painting parties. <laughs> yeah, we have a we have painting party. We have a thing called Cause Art, which is a really fun way to engage people in learning about social justice while having fun painting their cause gear. Most of our items are paintable canvas, so it's it's just a great way to engage people. Well, I hope a lot of people check out causegear.com and see some of the items. I'm enjoying my backpack that I've got. It's really good looking and uh I feel good about it. And I see somebody's face in the inside who made it. That's yeah. awesome. Well, it's uh, great to meet you, and congratulations on everything you're doing with Cosgear. Thanks so much. That's Brad Jeffrey and Catherine Jeffrey, the head and chief marketing officer of Cosgear. Tomorrow on Worldview, we're going to meet a group of artists who are trying to figure out immigration and racial justice in Chicago. Hope you can join us for that tomorrow on Worldview. Don't forget, Worldview is going on the road, and we're going to be talking about robots and artificial intelligence at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs next Thursday evening. And tickets and info are at wbez.org slash events. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering and Daniel Musisi for curating our music. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.